Hello and welcome to When They Popped. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Mary. And today is a special emergency episode in honor of Brittany's new book. So today is also really about Mary and this emergency episode. So Mary, take it away. Kelsey, you know this is not about me. This is about our girl Brittany. And for her, I will take a a day of PTO to sit and pour over the woman in me and take extensive notes and color-coordinated pens. So for you, the listeners, and for Brittany, we do that. So I'm just going to dive into it. I didn't really have a plan of attack on this. I just was going to kind of talk through some interesting things that I learned when reading this book. And I would love if you just like cut me off or if you had any follow-up or if you had any thoughts, just let, let's let talk about it. I have some things I want to discuss, yes, obviously. Welcome to the When They Popped Book Club, everybody. And this is our inaugural episode. Literally. Un- unedited, uncut. We're literally going to hit publish as soon as we're done talking because Mary read this at the speed of light. <laughs> she is not editing today, people. So that is where we are. But I mean, right off the bat, Kel's we get the book's dedication. Oh, and by the way, I asked Kelsey to try to really hard avoid to avoid spoilers so we could just, I could get kind of her raw reaction. And so she's been trying really hard the last couple of days, <laughs> but it's been hard, I'm sure. But um, I basically avoided all social media, even like some of our followers you have been DMing us with their questions, which has been great. But I've been seeing other people receiving their books in the mail. And I'm like, okay, I can't look at their page yes. for a while. <laughs> yes. She's been avoiding it. But right off the bat for the dedication page, we get for my boys who are the loves of my life. Aww. So just, you know, hitting hitting you in the feelers right away and ignore my rustling of my pages and my notes, but we're getting into it. You know, in the beginning of the book, we obviously get her origin story. We get how music was a form of escapism for her. I think that's been true for the majority of her life. We also get a really interesting story. Do you know much about her family history, Kelsey? I swear this is an interesting story. We're not like just going through the Spears family tree. No, I'd love to hear So on her dad's side, Jamie's side, she has a grandfather named June Spears, which does sound like a girl's name, but it is not. It is June Spears. And he he had a wife named Jean Spears. And Jean Spears suffered the loss of a baby when the baby was only three days old. And after, obviously, she was distraught. And hmm, this is very interesting. Grandpa June sent Jean to a mental asylum in Louisiana where she was put on lithium because of how she was reacting to the loss of her baby. And in 1966, when she was 31, Grandma Jean shot herself with a shotgun on her infant son's grave just over eight years after his death and after her institutionalization. And he went on to send another wife to a mental hospital as well. So right off the bat, this is like a family history almost like this is in the, this wow. has happened in the family before this is nothing new that's incredibly powerful and heartbreaking i know and she's named after that grandma Brittany jean yes grandma you're ex- very good ex- yes she is and so then we get into kind of the dynamic growing up in louisiana things you would expect that we would get um, obviously, J- Jamie was this junk, drunk alcoholic. Brittany told stories how she remembers she would, um, you know, get drunk with her mother, Lynn, and 
eighth grade. Okay. Um, I did see that in the spoilers. Sorry. Cause it was yes. like the people magazine, I think. And I was like, what the fuck? Like mm-hmm. that is so messed up. I know. Um, so like not only was her dad like a angry, abusive alcoholic, but her mom was also letting, you know, she's Brittany said, like we were the cool house. Um, and you know what happens at the cool houses, like anything goes there. And it started at a very young age. And we got some cute stories from Brittany's youth. I thought it was really cute. She she said at her career day, she always said that she wanted to be a lawyer. But obviously that never worked out. But that I I liked that. And she had this um quote where she she obviously was doing, you know, gymnastics, dance, singing, and but she also loved like hiding in cabinets. Like and she loved to get like attention doing that because everyone would have to look for her and find her and she would go away and hide. And then the next day she'd want to be on the stage and perform. And she says, I wanted to hide, but I also wanted to be seen. Both things could be true. Crouched in a cool darkness of a cabinet, I felt so small I could disappear, but with everyone's eyes on me, I became something else, someone who could command a room in white tights, belting out a song. I felt like anything was possible. So we're juxt- we get that juxtaposition kind of right off the bat. She is born to perform, obviously, but there is this side of her that just doesn't want that attention and doesn't want to be seen. But then it does at the same time. I don't know. It was you know, very interesting right off the bat. They talk about, um, she talks about how her brother Brian was in a terrible accident. And ever since when that happened, like he broke like basically every bone in her body. He had to pee through like a tube. Like she, that she's like, that's all I could remember. Like he must be close to death if he had to pee through a tube. And she said that changed the dynamic of the family like completely because Lynn and Jamie had, it was like an, um, like a trucking or ATVing type accident. I, I'm blanking at exactly what it was, but they felt a lot of regret, obviously, as guilt as a parent would in that situation. I'm sure he was not being supervised. And it just, her mom and her dad, while her dad was always very tough on on Brian, he her mom just completely deferred to him after that point, basically. That was just like her way of kind of dealing with her feelings around what had happened in his accident. And it was something that Brittany definitely noticed. Um, When you say deferred, can you, like, she just, like, he could do whatever he wanted, like, could do no wrong? Is that what you mean? Yeah, let's see. I (laughs) She writes in here, because she was telling about how it happened. They're four-wheelers. And they were trying to mow down some grass with their four-wheelers. And she writes, quote, this seems like a fa- this seems like a fantastic idea to them because they were idiots and like boom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she is. I love that. She's a savage in this. She's just like I have some good one liners um, underlined, but um, she says um, my parents were so grateful he'd survived and felt so bad for him that during his rec- his recovery every day was Christmas. My mom catered to my brother because of guilt. She still defers to him to this day. It's funny how one split second can change a family's dynamic forever. Interesting. So, wow. And and not to be too weird, but she Brittany then revealed that she shared a bed with Brian, not in a sexual way, but after because she got really close to Brian after that and was scared that she was going to lose him and um felt bad that how much pain he was going through. And she slept in like in bed with him till sixth grade until her mom made her stop, which maybe that's a Southern thing or a sibling thing that I just don't know. But 
I did underline it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's that weird. Like when she's young and like, For I don't years? think that's weird. I, hmm. I don't know. Okay, fair she, enough. I'm not that my siblings and I shared about ever, but still, <laughs> I, I get it. Like I can imagine being really scared, and that's like her her big brother. Yeah, like, that must have been really difficult to see. And so we get some, you know, she had her first, she talked a little bit about the Mickey Mouse Club and um, there was a story how when one her grandma passed away, I think it, it may have been Jean, I I didn't put that in my notes, that her and Lynn couldn't fly to, um, af- afford to fly home to Louisiana for the funeral. And so other Lynn, Justin's mother, um, fronted them the money to do that. Um, Kind of showed she she said you know the Mickey Mouse Club was family and that obviously wow. yes is um was a nice gesture and but after the Mickey Mouse Club um or excuse um excuse me prior to it ending she talked about her first kiss with Justin which was the result of Truth or Dare and she remembers that a Janet Jackson song was playing in the background <gasps> foreshadowing yes. I know oh my God I know the huh, I know. So after it ended, though, it went for like a year and a half, I think, that she was on. And she said a lot of my peers were like, you know, heading to New York, headed out to L.A., you know, ready to pursue this career. And she said she chose to go back to Kentwood. So fair enough. Um, And then again, so she's about 13 now. That's when she's, you know, drinking and smoking with her mom. And also she said she was driving at 13 as well. Um. What a great combo. Your teenage daughter whose frontal lobe has nowhere near finished developing. Give her alcohol and cigarettes Mm. and a car. Apparently, Lynn, when they were all in the car with baby Jamie Lynn, um, Lynn suspected that Brittany had been smoking and had like this selective outrage moment. She's like, wait, you were smoking? Even though like, it, it, you know, what's smoking on top and drinking it with, you know, at this point. And she ripped the wheel out of Brittany's hands and it called them, caused them to like spin out and actually like ram into a telephone pole. Jamie Lynn was in the back seat, not in a car seat, because apparently, as Brittany said, that's kind of the Southern way um, back then, at least. And it, it, you know, it just was, she said the smoking incident was completely forgotten and never came up again after that. I think Lynn was just grateful that they were all still alive, but it just sounds really chaotic. Nothing, you know, not that we're surprised about that. Um, but she lost, um, she told us how she lost her virgin- virginity to Brian's brother, Brian's bestie. Um, he was a 17 year old senior and she was a young ninth grader. And so what are you, what are you in ninth grade? 14, 15? Too young. I know. I know. I think that's Reg. I think that's her boyfriend, Reg, if anybody is, is into it as I am. But Brian was pissed, told on her. She had to like, her punishment was like cleaning up trash. It's like, how about like, um, like just don't let her date someone older. Or drink alcohol or smoke yeah. cigarettes or drive a car. Like yeah. you're all forcing her to grow up too soon. That's why she thinks she's mature enough. Yes. And so she was like, I was trying to live this like normal Kentwood life, but, and this is what I thought I wanted, but I missed performing and I missed kind of this, that other side of me. And so Lynn had been in contact with uh someone we all know, Larry Rudolph. And he, uh, he was like, you know, let's get her to record a demo. And she recorded a Tony Braxton, like throwaway cut called Today. 
And um, she went out to New York. She went and sang I Have Nothing um, and was signed by Clive Calder, who was an executive who formed Jive. I, I don't know. I thought it was Clyde Davis, but it said Clive Calder. But she he signed her on the spot. And um, there is a really cool story. So she gets her record deal. It, it did not seemingly take long once her mom connected with Larry Rudolph. She went and did this little tour. She would go sing in a room full of men and, you know, stand there and look pretty and cute. And that, that was it. And, um, there was, a this is a little cute bit. Um, then, so she had been recording in New Jersey for her first album. And then all of a sudden, one of the executives told me, you need to meet this producer from Sweden. He's really good. He writes cool songs. All right, I said, who who has he worked with? And so she did some research. She saw that he's worked with Rob and the Backstreet Boys, Brian Adams. And she's like, okay, let's do it. So Max Martin flew to New York and we had dinner meeting. We had a dinner meeting, just me and him with no assistance or label people. Even though I usually had handlers around me because of my age, in this case, they wanted me to meet him by myself. As we sat down, a waiter came over and said, how may I help you? In that moment, somehow a candle flipped over and sent the whole table up in flames. We were in the middle of one of the most expensive restaurants in New York City, and our table had just become a wall of fire from how may I help you to a flame wall in under a second. Max and I looked at each other in horror. We should go now, yeah, he said. He was magic, and we started working together. So I kind of liked that... um, I'd never heard that story before. I don't know if Max has told that story. I have never heard it. But they started out in flames and they produced flames after that. (laughs) She said she recorded Baby One More Time really, really late at night because they noticed that like when her voice was tired, it came out like more. She describes it like as gravelly, like more mature, more sexy. And um, that is kind of where that song came from um she said hold on bear with me people she talks about the baby one more time music video and she said that was the most fun she had doing like um for that first album working on that video and it's probably the most moment in excuse me she then says that's probably the moment in my life when i had the most passion for music I was unknown and I had nothing to lose if I messed up. There is so much freedom in being anonymous. It was kind of liberating that I didn't really have to care if I made mistakes, which, wow, yeah, very interesting, right? And so let's see, what else do I have? Page, hold on, let's see. There's a lot of notes. So she talks about, okay. Oh, God. Okay, Kelsey, I told you there was an interesting Backstreet Boys story, and we get into a little bit more, or not a story, but a comment. And Liana from When They Popped, excuse me, Liana from This Must Be Popped, Liana from This Must Be Popped texted me at making sure that we would give our take on this. So I obviously was sent her a picture of my notes and was like, already ahead of you, sister. Don't worry. But, um, she just talked about first her and Justin and kind of their relationship, how they started. They had so much in common, you know, coming from the Mickey Mouse Club, interest in becoming, you know, being performers. And 
uh, Lynn um, described them, Lynn, Justin's mother, described them like magnets. And that was just kind of their energy together. And uh, it's weird, to be honest, she said, how in love we were. And this is when she talks about NSYNC and the difference between NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. She says, his band NSYNC was what people backed then. Wait, oh my God, I have to start this again because I have to get this right. She goes, his band NSYNC was what people back then called, quote unquote, so pimp. They were white boys, but they loved hip hop. To me, that's what separated them from the Backstreet Boys, who seemed very consciously, who seemed, who seemed very conscious, consciously to position themselves as a white group. In sync, hang, hung out with black artists. Mm. <laughs> what does she insinuate? <laughs> well, and then Liana was like, you know, there's two like, like not there's like Latino members and Backstreet Boys. It's not like we're like a white washed group, you know, I, I don't know, but it was a very weird mention of Backstreet Boys. Um, but then this is, I thought this was interesting. The whole book up until now, they call, they call him Justin Timberlake. That's like, he is full named Justin Timberlake. And now he becomes Jay in the book, which was also an interesting like switch for me. And um, she has this exchange that when she was walking in New York with Jay, a.k.a. Justin Timberlake, uh, with Felicia and their bodyguards. And they they saw the singer Genuine walking on the street. And she says, Jay got all excited and said so loud, oh, yeah, faux shiz, faux shiz, Genuine, what's up, homie? I'm having and a visceral reaction. To I this. know. I'm sorry. I know. And after Genuine walked away, Felicia did an impression of Jay making fun of this um, exchange. And Jay wasn't even embarrassed. He just took it and looked at her like, okay, fuck you, Fee. That was the trip where he got his first necklace, a big T for Timberlake. <sighs> that is so cringy. And I remember when Justin used to talk like that. I know it was like it, it uncomfortable. <laughs> it was uncomfortable. Um, and while maybe Backstreet Boys wasn't super into hip hop, sorry, I can't make this about Backstreet Boys, but like they had a lot of R and B influences in their music totally. and that they incorporated. So, uh, you know, I don't know. But um, so then um, she ta- she talked about her VMA performance, how Wade her first one in the diamond suit, how Wade choreographed it. Um, she says he always knew how to make me look strong and feminine at the same time. And she said, and the, it kind of talked about the aftermath of that performance because there was a lot of backlash from that. She, you know, how MTV made her sit down in front of a front of a monitor and watch strangers in Times Square, give their opinions of her performance. And, you know, they were, she was too sexy. She wore a too skimpy outfit. Um, it was a bad example for kids. And they had cameras literally trained on her waiting to see how she would react to this criticism. And like the host at the time was just like pushing her. Like, what did, what do you think about uh, people saying that you're corrupting America's youth? And, um, you know, she kind of had this comment. She's like, well, I'm not their parents. You know, I understand that not everyone's going to like me. And she said this, this really shook her up because it was her first real taste of backlash that would obviously continue for years and years and years. And oh, a lot of like, get used to it, girl. I know it's all, this is just the start. 
Um, and she said, you know, a lot of the shots were that I, you know, I was this manufactured, manufactured pop star and that I wasn't authentic. And she goes, I'm not, I was never quite, quite sure what all these critics thought I was supposed to be doing a Bob Dylan impression. I was, I was a teenage, yes, yes. I was a teenage girl from the South. I signed my name with a heart. I liked looking cute. Why did everyone treat me when I was a teenager? Like I was dangerous. Wow, that's so powerful. I know. And then to end that chapter, we get this, you know, she's talking um, how she was trying to protect her heart from this criticism that she had just started to get in waves. And she started reading some religious books and also started taking Prozac. End of chapter. (laughs) Is that foreshadowing for the chapter to come, perhaps? I don't know. But the next chapter or two... Where it was interesting to me because she really just skims the su- surface of her Super Bowl performance, uh, her VMA performance with Banana, and her following performance with Michael Jackson at that benefit that he did. And I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I thought she could, you know, give us these like stories or, th- you know, little tidbits about these like pivotal moments and just like kind of she literally just retold, you know, what the basics of yes, like I have nothing to say. She did say she was very impressed with the concept of the Pepsi commercials, but that's really all we got on that as well. So, <laughs> do you think maybe it's because she's like, maybe I'm looking into this too much? No, but do you-, do you think she's just trying to keep some stuff for herself? Maybe, maybe, sure. Or maybe she like honestly just doesn't remember. Like, think of how iconic her career has been. Like, oh, I know so many moments. To, like, I can barely remember my life, and it is not iconic. So, right. like. <laughs> Like I can only imagine when you like have her so whole much- her baseline is iconic. Yeah, and like cultural shifts. Like so, for us, it's like a huge pivotal moment that we probably remember. But to her, it's like, oh yeah, that was just another Saturday, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, just something I noticed, but that's a good point. It could be either a not a big deal or b something you know she's keeping for Brittany, which I totally understand. She uh, then gets into crossroads and. um uh, she said that this, it was a really difficult experience for her. And it, she based that on like what the acting did to her mind. And she said, I think I started method acting only. I didn't know how to break out of my character. I really became this other person. Some people do method acting, but they're usually aware of the fact that they're doing it, but I didn't have any separation at all. And like, she's like, I took it to like, it would just, I just became Lucy from Crossroads in my day-to-day life. And it, I took it seriously to the point where Justin said, why are you walking like that? Who are you? And it just, you know, I never would have thought that that would have been like, I mean, I know nothing about acting, but like such like a method role and like something that would be so consumed. She said it took like almost eight months after filming, filming for her to like come out of this persona, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Sounds uh, like, who are those, like, like Heath Ledger, I feel like was a big method oh, actor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I think it literally killed him. But, I mean, who knows? He just got so into that role. But um, I also found out that she was offered um, a role, a part in Chicago. And that, like, <gasps> yes. As Roxy Hart? 
Well, okay. She didn't say the role. And maybe you can tell me, help me think this out. She says, I think so. She says, I would have gotten to play a villain who kills a man and sings and dances while doing it too. Oh, okay. So she would have been one of the girls from the cell block tango probably, which Maya, maybe she was up for Maya's role. Oh, that would see, that would make sense. And that would have been so amazing. Lip shits. Yes. Cicero. (laughs) Um, Lip shits. And she. Six. Click. Ah, okay, I, now I'm gonna go listen to the Chicago soundtrack. I love that song; it's so good. But she regrets it. She says, "I should have done it. I had power back then, and I wish I had used it more thoughtfully and been more rebellious." And we're getting these themes right here. Obviously, she's very controlled. She's very, you know, managed. And like, they, I'm surprised that they didn't want her to do this. And I guess they didn't want her to be distracted from music, but it's like, this would have been such a great, you know, validation that right. she was like seeking. If everyone is telling her that she can't sing Broadway is like the number one way to like stick it to the critics. That's like the hardest thing that right. a musician or an actor can do. So like, I was just kind of like, what the hell, what the hell? Like this would have been good for a career, but I think they just had her on this, you know, tract and it did not involve, you know, Chicago, but she, she actually did say like, Cause she, she did kind of, was kind of bummed. She didn't take Chicago, but she did say like, she was happy that, um, the notebook didn't work out because she, she just felt like it would have consumed her life kind of like after crosswords, crossroads, crossroads. (laughs) I've been doing so many crosswords literally, but, um, she just didn't realize kind of the, um, toll it would take on her. But, um, and has everyone been watching all the clips from the audition tape that we've been oh, seeing all over yeah. social? She did she so did good. So good. Oh my God. The way she made herself cry. I, I was couldn't so take it. impressed. Truly a, a talent. I, I was, uh, she's so good. Uh, I only cried once while reading with reading this. So, Oh this, really? Do you want to, okay. You don't keep going in order. I'm enjoying like going yes. chronologically. Okay. But, Earmark that for when it comes because I want to know what part. I will tell you when my and you you won't be surprised. Um, So at this time, she's like, in my personal life, I was so happy. Justin and I lived together in Orlando. And it it had this, you know, even though they were both so busy, they were making this time to to come back to Orlando, spend a couple of weeks, even a month here and there together. And this is this is a great story. Um, She tells the story when her family came to visit her and Justin in Orlando and they went to FAO Schwartz and they closed the whole store down for them. And little Miss Jamelin got a miniature convertible car that had actual doors that opened. Like, you know, one of those Barbie Jeeps or something like that that we all wanted back in the day. And um, she goes, that that child in that car was unlike anything else. This adorable little girl driving around in a miniature red Mercedes. It was the cutest thing you could have ever seen in your entire life. That's how we all were with Jamie Lynn. You see it, you like it, you want it, you got it. As far as I could tell, her world was Ariana Grande's song, Seven Rings Come to Life. Oh, I was going to say, uh, this Ariana reference. Yes, it was. It was. And so I thought that it, foreshadowing with more Jamie Lynn to come. But um, she tells the, the the denim story, you know, the matching dem, denim outfits for the American Music Awards in 2001. Whose idea was it? Does she say who came up with that concept? Hers. She suggested <gasps> of course. it. She of course. Su- mm-hmm. But she didn't think her stylist or JT would, A, take it seriously, or B, that like they would go along with it. And she was like just shocked that it actually came into 
fruition. And I would like to draw attention to um, a comment she makes because she, you know, she loves that everybody still does it and like, you know, does it for Halloween and how iconic it's become. And she actually referenced a podcast, which has made me think, is she listening to podcasts? Brittany, are you there? Like, hello? <laughs> like, are you there, Brittany? She's acknowledging, <laughs> she's acknowledging podcasts, which I'm like, oh my God. And so, and she just kind of mentioned a quote that Justin said about it um, on a podcast, but I, I was literally triggered by the, the fact that she knows what a podcast is. So I was really excited about that. There's a chance. Um, but um, so let's get into the the uglier stuff. Um, the cheating. <sighs> there was a couple times during our relationship when I knew Justin had cheated on me, especially because I was so infatuated and so in love, I let it go, even though the tabloids seemed determined to rub it in my face. When NSYNC went to London in 2000, photographers caught him with one of the girls from All Saints in a car, but I never said anything. At the time, we'd only been together for a year. And I feel like that was like a thing, like at least in college, like guys would be like, well, we'd only been dating for like three months. So it's like, I know. just like gaslighting and like minimizing, minimizing know, yes, valid exactly. feelings. And then we have a second cheating incident. She says, another time we were in Vegas and one of my dancers who'd been hanging out with him told me he gestured toward a girl and said, yeah, man, I hit that last night. I don't want to say who he was talking about because she's actually very popular and married with kids now. And I don't want her to feel bad. And, you know, she said her friend was like, maybe it seems like he was bragging and maybe was over exaggerating, you know, who knows. But and she's like, I let it all go. But clearly he'd slept around. It was one of those things where, you know, but you just don't say anything. And she goes, so I did, too. Not a lot one time with Wade Robson. And we all, if you're listening, you know who he is. So I'm not even gonna go there, but we went out one night and we went to a Spanish bar. We danced and danced. I made out with him that night. Okay. So she freaking kissed someone. And Justin's uh, going around bragging, saying he quote unquote hit that. Yeah. It's, excuse me, my vomit. Sorry. Like in my mouth, but she goes on to say, I was loyal to Justin for years, only had eyes for him with that one exception, which I admitted to him. That night was chalked up to something that will happen when you're young, as we were, and Justin and I moved past it and stayed together. I thought we were going to be together forever. I hoped we would be. At one point when we were dating, I became pregnant with Justin's baby. It was a surprise for me. It was a surprise, but for me, it wasn't a tragedy. I loved Justin so much. I always expected us to have a family together one day. But Justin definitely wasn't happy about the pregnancy. He said we weren't ready to have a baby in our lives, that we were too young. I could understand. I mean, I kind of understood. If he didn't want to become a father, I feel like I, di I didn't feel like I had much of a choice. I wouldn't want to push him into something he didn't want. Our relationship was too important to me. And so I'm sure people will hate me for this, but I agreed not to have the baby. So Kelsey, I want to get your thoughts. I interpreted this when we first heard about the abortion as Justin and Brittany being like, oh my God, we're not ready to be parents. We, we can't do this right now. Like we agree that this is the best move for us going forward. 
And I did not get that at all from that passage. Um, what do you think? Um, I feel like it's hard to, I don't know. I, it sounds like he definitely like probably talked her out of something, but Mm -hmm. I, it sounds like she was agreeable to that path forward though. Like it doesn't seem like it sounds like initially she was excited about this, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like he rationalized with her why they weren't ready. And they both came to the conclusion that they were. Uh, I forgot to read the next sentence, which is kind of important. I'm sorry. So hold on, hold that thought. I thought it was like she was moved on to something else. She said, abortion was something I never could have imagined choosing for myself. But given the circumstances, that is what we did. I don't know if that was the right decision. If it had been left up to me alone, I never would have done it. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my bad. Thing. That's my bad. I'm sorry. It sounds like she's like morally opposed to abortion too. So like it sounded like there was uh, at least what the undertones that I'm getting from this yeah. is like yeah, the southern she just didn't yeah. believe. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that definitely puts a different light on it for sure. And that's my bad because I didn't. I, I misinterpreted the paragraph, um, but that was part of that story still. So I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, it is. I mean, that just goes to show that the clips that we've been getting through all the, you know, news articles that we've been seeing through the social posts, like you don't get the full story until you read the full story. Right. And then she goes to talk about kind of the abortion itself. So we're getting into it. Uh, And they, you know, they decided, they decided, she said that, she should not have it done at like at a doctor's or a hospital just because of the, you know, the press was crazy. And so they decided to do it at home and they didn't tell either, either family. The only people that knew were Justin and Fee. And, um, as she says on the appointment day with only Felicia and Justin there, I took the little pills. Soon I started having excruciating cramps. I went into the bathroom and stayed there for hours, lying on the floor, sobbing and screaming. She, I'm skipping just over some details of the pain, um, but she thought she'd like literally needed to go to the hospital. Um, Justin came into the bathroom and lay on the floor with me. At some point, he thought maybe music would help, so he got his guitar and he lay there with me strumming it. (laughs) Yeah, let me sing you a song, baby. (laughs) She said, I kept crying and sobbing until it was all over. It took hours, and I don't remember how it ended. But I do, 20 years later, remember the pain of it and the fear. After that, I was messed up for a while, especially because I still did love Justin so much. It was insane how much I loved him. And for me, it was unfortunate. I should have seen the breakup coming, but I didn't. End of chapter. Wow. And I know. it. it uh, I, hmm. I'm going to keep going. Are you ready for more I can't stuff? believe he fucking pulled out a guitar. He's like, let me sing this little riff I've been working on. <laughs> this like will make you feel better. <laughs> it's in, let me sing your pain away, Brittany. <sighs> oh, my. Sorry. I know we need to keep in mind that he was, yes. they were so young when this was happening. He was 19. They, right. They were teenagers. Like right. that is an insane heavy experience to have when you're that young and when they lead when they led such weird childhoods yeah like they didn't have a normal upbringing they don't have a normal sense of like how the world works because they grew up as child stars and if you've learned nothing from this podcast it's that child stars do not 
are not afforded some of the basic luxuries that mm. like normal children are like privacy and not right. having your parents like squeeze you for every dime that you're worth. I know. So I, know. I just try to keep all of that in mind hearing this stuff because they were both so young and had such little life experience while also being so exploited at the same time. Right. It's so weird. And we're not like J- JT haters or anything like that. It, you know, some of this reading from Brittany's perspective is cringeworthy, you know, but it, as Kelsey said, I just, they were kids and I'm sure they both have regrets um, back from back in that day. And so it's not on me to judge. That's, that's how I feel, but it continues. It continues. So justified was right around the corner and Brittany began to notice that he was being like standoffish and like in hindsight she's like yeah it's because he was about to use me as ammunition for his record Uh, and and so it made it awkward for him to be around me staring at him with all that affection and devotion yeah no shit he was going to be standoffish and so Ultimately, though, as this just leaked in the news, he ended our relationship by text message while I was on the set for the video for the Overprotected Remix by Dark Child. After seeing that message as I sat in my trailer between takes, I had to go back out and dance. For as much as Justin hurt me, there was a huge foundation of love, and when he left me, I was devastated. When I say devastated, I mean I could barely speak for months. Whenever anyone asked me about him, all I could do was cry. I don't know if I was clinically in shock, but it felt that way. Like, see, I would have never expected that. Yeah. Like, Uh. she just, she seemed like so, like, all the time, just so, like, perky and happy. And, like, like, I'm like, it's Britney Spears. Like, everybody loves Britney Spears, you know? It's just hard to know, like, how much pain she was going through behind the scenes, you know? But that was so much her persona was like being the girl who signs her name with a heart, you know, I know. And like not wanting to let your fans down. And we saw what a great little actress she is. So truly she put it on. This is what Dr. Theron was talking about in our parasocial relationships episode. Like how much of celebrities know who they really are and are able to act the way that they feel Mm. like what, at what point is like, the mask becoming do you know what, what? i'm getting at? Yes. i'm doing a bad job explaining this but yes. i feel like she was never able to feel the things that she wanted to feel and maybe that is you know just another contributing factor to that spiral that we all oh. saw yes i know 100 percent. that's totally a factor and she just took this so hard she she had to go back to kentwood and like she says i was just that messed up i lay in my bed and stared at the ceiling Justin even flew out to Louisiana to visit me. He brought me a long letter he'd written and framed. I still have it under my bed. I still have it under my bed. And at the end, it says, it makes me want to cry to think about it. Okay, no, he doesn't say that. So at the end of the letter, and she says, (laughs) it makes her want to cry when she thinks about it. That quote, I can't breathe without you, end quote. Those are the last words in it. And reading that, I thought, damn, he's a good writer. Because that was exactly how I felt. It almost felt like I was suffocating. Um, Wait, so he brought her a letter already framed? Yes, yes. That she hadn't read before? No, apparently. Wait, so he's just like going in being like, wow, this letter's so fucking good. Like, she's going to want to frame it. So I'm going to do it for her? Like, I wish she needed to give us more. You know, I I need I have so many more questions than answers. 
This is wild. I know. And she, she still has it under her bed, like under her childhood bed or under her bed right now. Like, I again, I want to know. Well, Mary, where is you, don't you keep all your love letters? I keep all of mine. I keep a lot of shit. I do. I do. I keep more than I, I'm a pack rat, though. Like, I can't throw one ticket stub away. So, you know, let alone a love letter. But wow. Do you think she'll ever show us what's in that letter? No, because I feel like this was the time. It was too personal. Probably. She's she's a classy lady. She, like, I don't think she, like, you know, what does she gain from the? I, it just doesn't seem like. One day, who, uh, one day that letter, that framed letter is going <laughs> to be on eBay. <laughs> and we will be bidding our 401ks <laughs> on it. <laughs> so, Everything. So while this is going on, she is like in the midst of her dream within a dream tour. And she's like, I still had tour dates left in my contract, even though the last thing I wanted to do was perform. This is very classic. Brittany is. We'll see over the years. And um, she loved this tour. She, she mentioned one tour that she hated that we haven't got to yet, but she loved Dream Within a Dream. But by this time, she was heartbroken. She was exhausted. She just did not want to do it. And um, so she finished it off in Mexico. There's this crazy story where they were like stopped in Mexico by a bunch of guys holding huge like uh, machine guns. And there was like this whole exchange. And she's like, I don't know what happened, but we were like held up and then uh, we were allowed to carry on. And I was like, well, did you, why didn't you ask someone what happened? But she didn't tell us. Um, But so finally, those were her last dream within a dream show of shows. And when she told people after finishing the tour that she wanted to rest, everyone seemed nervous. When you're successful at something, there's a lot of pressure to keep right on doing it, even if you're not doing enjoying it anymore. So she was able to go back home again to Louisiana for a bit, but um, her team set her up with for a people interview at that time, and um, which she didn't really understand because um, she was taking a break, but you know she went along with it. And they had her empty out her purse to prove that she wasn't carrying any drugs or cigarettes. All they found was, yeah, like for this interview, they all they found was juicy fruit gum, vanilla, perfume, mints, and a little bottle of St. John's wort. Quote, my daughter is doing beautifully, my mom told the reporter confidently. She's never, ever been close to a breakdown. Because, you know, everyone's like, oh, she's reeling post-Justin. Brittany he runs home to Kentwood and spiraling with drugs. And and so, like, as part of the interview, they had her empty her freaking purse. And there's Lynn, the mouthpiece, being like, Brittany's perfect. Everything's great. She's never had a bad day in her life. How did Brittany feel about that? Like, that seems like she was walking into something so accusatory and weird. It makes me more surprised that she's sort of like calling out this news outlet that she would give them the exclusive about her book. Oh, that's true. Maybe because it would, well, maybe it isn't her. Okay. Anyway. My tin hat is on. Okay. Oh, I, I did really well with this book, Kelsey, till the very end that something was said and that I don't agree with. And it sent me into a spiral, but, um, until this point, I've been doing great. And, but I, this, I found this very touching. She said, part of what made that period of time so difficult is Justin's family had been the only real loving family I had. For holidays, the only family I would go to was his. I knew his grandmom and his grandfather, and I loved them so much. 
My mom would come out and visit us every once in a while, but she's not who I went home to ever. My mom was trying to recover from her divorce from my dad, which she had finally gone through with. She was depressed and self-medicating. She could barely get off the couch. My dad was nowhere to be found. And my little sister, well, when I tell you she was a total bitch, I'm not exaggerating. (gasps) I know. What year is this? This is 2002. Is this Zoe 101 time? Um, no, it's Zoe 101 hasn't happened yet. Not yet. She's a she's she she talks about Jamie. She calls her adolescent. Jamie Lynn may have been like our age. She might have been like ninety one. So she probably was like ten or eleven years old. Um, but okay, Zoe 101 happened in two thousand five. Okay, so she was three years away from that. Um. She said the way that adolescent adolescent Jamie Lynn spoke to my mother, my mouth would just drop. I turned to my mother and say, are you going to let this little witch talk to you like that? I also felt betrayed by how Jamie Lynn had changed. I'd bought a house for Jamie Lynn to grow up in. She was not exactly grateful for it. She'd later say, why'd she get us a house? Like it was some sort of imposition. But that house had been a gift. I bought it because her family had needed a new house and I wanted to, and I wanted her to have a better life than I had. holy shit i i know she said she went home for this period of time in louisiana and she's like i just realized i didn't fit in anywhere anymore i realized i was technically growing up becoming a woman and yet honestly it was like i went backward at the same time and became younger in my mind have you seen the curious case of case of benjamin button that's how i felt Somehow that year and becoming more vulnerable, I started to feel like a child again. End of chapter. Uh, Wow. That's so, I think that that really verbalizes what so many women in particular, I think are afraid to show. Like if you do show any vulnerability, that people think you're weak. Like you can't mistake those two things. They're not the same. And she just wasn't allowed to take more than like two weeks to heal. Like you need time to heal after trauma like that and her team was like you know you'll be busy you'll forget and no you're just suppressing they were exploiting her exactly exactly so i won't get into this but like she goes into um she she does like she goes and visits donatella in milan and kind of she's like i started to try to party a little bit but um you know, she just, she was hurt and she, she almost brought this guy home with her. She told the story and then she, he said something in the car when they were driving back to their, where she was staying in Milan and she literally kicked him out on the side of the road. She's like, I don't remember what he said, but it just, it, it irritated me. And she's like, now I'm a mom and I would never do that. But, um, it was just pure in- instinct. And I realized I made a mistake letting the stranger inside my car and I kicked him out. So that's what Brittany was up to in the breakup. And we pivot to Justin on 2020 as he's playing his unreleased song for Barbara Walters called Don't Go, parentheses, Horrible Woman, that seemed to be about Brit. I thought our love was so strong. I guess I was dead wrong. But to look at it positively, hey, girl, at least you gave me a song about another horrible woman. And so then, yeah, you... Okay, so that Barbara Walters, knowing what we know about how Brittany feels about Justin's family, that Barbara Walters interview must have been so devastating because yeah. Justin's mom is included in it and she kind of badmouths Brittany. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad. 
I wonder, you know, with our call with Kelly, if maybe Lynn had some regrets of how, how that went down or. I'm sure. I'm sure. She's know. just, you know, being there for her son. Yes. I can't imagine. Of course, she's going to stick with her son. Like, I totally can give her compassion for that. Like, that's a tough position to right. be in. But I can also put myself in Britney's shoes and be devastated that, like, this person yeah. who was, like, the only caring parent that you had in your life is, like, not on your side. That's awful. It honestly, Kelsey's book is literally one hit after the next. Is she just keeps like taking these gut punches? It's it's really sad. Obviously, right after that is when Crimea River comes out, and you know the Britney lookalikes in the video. She says, "I was described as a harlot who'd broken the heart of America's golden boy." The truth: I was comatose in Louisiana, and he was happily running around Hollywood. She said, may I just say that on his explosive album and in all the several, sorry, she said, may I just say that on his explosive album and in all the press that surrounded it, Justin neglected to mention the several times he cheated on me. And then she talked about this like narrative that's in Hollywood, how it's like, you know, it's kind of like cool for like a man to maybe like be unfaithful to a woman. But like if a woman does it, you know, fuck you, bitch. That's kind of like the the storyline, um, getting the revenge from this like perceived disrespect from, you know, this slutty woman. And she goes, the only problem with that narrative was in our case, it wasn't like that. And, um, she's like, I felt like there was no way at the time to tell my side of the story. I couldn't explain because I knew no one would take my side once Justin had convinced the world of his version. I don't think Justin realized the power he had in shaming me. And I still don't think he, and I still don't think he understands to this day. This reminds me of Christina Aguilera can't hold us down. It does. It does. <laughs> like how guys can do whatever they want. Girls cannot. Uh, what is it? The guy gets all the glory the more he can score while the uh, girl can do the same and yet you call her a whore. That was the I mean, it probably still is today, but it, it was definitely more very prevalent at that time as well. Ugh, it's really sad. And the okay, tabloid culture back then, like it can't be understated. No. How awful it was. And if you weren't alive for it, like it, it's hard to it's hard to imagine. Like like <laughs> just like the amount of paparazzi that would be following a celebrity. Like there's laws in place now and anyone can be a paparazzi with a phone. But like back then you were making like millions of dollars with one picture. Um, and it, it, and as a result, it was a frenzy. And so it just is totally different. Inhumane. Yeah. Like literally inhumane. She also talked about how everyone told everybody that, you know, they had had sex. We all remember that radio interview. Um, which some people pointed out depicted her to be not only a cheating slut, but also a liar and a hypocrite because her whole image was like this virgin, virgin, you know, innocent. And she's like, um, but the truth of the matter is like, Justin and I have been living together and I've been having sex since I was 14. And she honestly was like, kind of, she's like, I wasn't mad actually when he outed that because like, I was sick of this like virgin image that I was being like forced to toe the line with. And this, it, it took the focus off me as a musician and a performer. She's like, I worked so hard on my music and on my stage, on my stage shows, but all some reporters could think to ask me of is whether or not my breasts were real or whether or not my hymen was intact. Like, ah! 
literally, it's so gross how obsessed. I'm glad that she used those terms because it makes it sound as ridiculous as it is. It it. Let me tell you, my jaw was on the floor because I just loved how like sassy and like sharp yes. she was being in the you know that this writing was. I know it was ghostwritten, but I definitely feel some Britney sass in this. And Does sound very sharp. Yes. And she deserves to punch back. All these years, these yes. people have been saying these things about her. And I feel like she's never been able to come back and say anything no. about it. And she, she's kept, she's been pretty quiet. She, you know, and she never like went back at him because everyone's like, well, if she didn't do anything, she would defend herself, you know, on um, Barbara Walters or what was it? Diane Sawyer. And she, um, we'll get to that. And she just is like, Why? no one would believe me. You know, it's as simple as that. I don't know. It's really sad, but um, what was I going to say? She said at this point, though, this is when she started to kind of gaslight herself in the sense that she's like, I knew the truth of our relationship and I knew it was nothing like it was being portrayed, but I still kind of felt like if I was suffering this much and everybody was saying all this about me, like I must have deserved it. Like, um, she, she was like, I was so sensitive. I was so young. I was reeling from this abortion and breakup. Um, Justin framed our time together with me as the bad guy and I became to believe it. And so ever since then, I felt like I've just kind of been under a curse. And it's, you know, it's like uh -oh. when someone, I know when someone tells you something a hundred, like you start to believe it after a while, after you hear it over and over, you're this bad guy, you're the right. side, you, you did this. And then you start telling yourself that. Yeah. And so and every little thing that you do wrong, it's like, oh, well, maybe everyone's right. Right. Exactly. That's and that's where she went. And I understand why it's hard to like kind of get out of your own head when everybody's saying something about you. But, you know, she says Justin ended up sleeping with six or seven girls in the weeks after we officially broke up or so I heard. Hey, I get it. He was Justin Timberlake. Uh, but she said, so I decided if Justin was going to date, I should try to get out there, too. She saw someone cute um, one night, and her friend told her she had good taste. Her friend said, his name's Colin Farrell, and he's shooting a movie right now. She goes, well, talk about balls. The next day, I got in my car, and I drove up to the set of his action movie, SWAT. Who did I think I was? I'm, like, dying at this. And she uh, she just walked onto the set, and the director noticed her, and he was like, oh, come sit in my chair. And so then, yeah, she's like, she's sitting in the of honor. Literally like, oh, hello, Britney Spears is here. Biggest star in the world's here right now. And so, of course, Colin found his way over and he was like, do you have any pointers for what I should do here? He was like asking her for, you know, acting tips and stuff. And she says, quote, we wound up having a two week brawl, B-R-A-W-L. Brawl is the only word for it. We were all over each other, grappling so passionately. It was like we were in a street fight. Woo. What? Whoa. Okay, when I first heard the brawl comment, I was like, wait, they like fought a lot? Like, like, I was like so naive about it. He was so hot in that movie. Like I remember yes. seeing that theaters. He is so fine. And she she picked right up on that. And he, he even took her to the premiere of his movie The Recruit with Al Pacino and she said I was so flattered he asked me to go but I wore a pajama top I thought it was a real shirt because it had miniature studs on it but I see the photos and I think yeah I definitely wore a full-blown pajama top to Colin Farrell's premiere 
Well, who amongst us hasn't had a fat? I know. <laughs> I Maybe know. not would call it on our arm, but still. Oh, my God. Just so That's funny. <laughs> I know. I love to think that Brittany looks back at old photos and is like, wow, why did I wear that? Yes. Also, it's very comforting. Stars. They're just like us. Literally. She she's one of the people. Um, In hindsight, she's like looking back. She's like, you know, I was so fresh out of this relationship and this kind of happened so fast. And I was trying to convince myself, you know, uh, it was not a big deal. I was vulnerable. It was just kind of like a fling. But she did say for a brief moment in time, I did think there could be something there. Um, and, and when talking about Colin, obviously there wasn't, but, you know, that's kind of where she was with her um, in her headspace. Um, but she was just becoming very isolated at this time. She starts to develop what she, she describes like a very severe kind of form of social anxiety. Um, she didn't want to be going out. She wasn't at the clubs or dinners. She, she wanted to be by herself. And um, she pivots right here before continuing that story to talk about the Justified and Christina tour that happened around this time. Um, you know, she was kind of getting portrayed in the media as like, oh, Brittany's struggling. She's not, you know, depressed without Justin. And meanwhile, there's this, all these positive stories about Justin and Christina and this tour they're going on. And they even have that um, cover, I believe, on Rolling Stone together. And um, they, Christina even commented in the interview that she thought that Justin and Brittany should get back together, um, which Brittany was like, I thought that was just confusing as hell. She doesn't say hell, but I did. And she said, seeing people I know so intimately talk about me that way in the press stung. Even if they weren't trying to be cruel, it felt like they were just pouring salt in the wound. Why was it so easy for everyone to forget that I was a human being, vulnerable enough that these headlines could leave a bruise? Wow. <sighs> we would all do well to remember that. <laughs> like, no, no kidding. Celebrities are people. They read the comments that you leave them on their Instagram. Like, don't be a dick. Like, imagine it's just like sweet Britney Spears. Like, you don't want to like you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You know, be, like that also, can stay. Like, thanks, Christina. Like, I would get back together with him if I could. Like, yeah. shut up. I know. Just not what she needed to hear. But so she went and lived in New York City um, by herself. She had a four story no ho apartment. It once was shares. Um, Robin Williams uh, once made her laugh in the elevator. But she was like, I literally nef never left the place. I only talked to Fee and my bodyguard. And she said, you know, Fee, I didn't need a chaperone at that time. And so Fee had, you know, became a friend and an assistant by then. And she was like, I was totally content staying home. I liked it there. I felt safe. Um, but she did have a, a few vi visitors. And one that she touched on was Madonna. And she remembers Madonna walking into her New York City apartment and just um, she just owned the she owned the room and she goes nice view and Brittany's like yeah it's a nice view I guess <laughs> and she's got the sense that Brittany uh, or Madonna uh, understood that she was going through a bit of a hard time and this is when she you know tried to take her under her wing and mentor her a bit and, and that's when Brittany had her moment in Kabbalah. Madonna did that red string ceremony with her to initiate her into Kabbalah. And she, at the base of her neck, she tattooed a word in Hebrew that means one of the 72 names of God. Some Kabbalists think of it as meaning healing, which is what she was still trying to do. 
And she just really admired Madonna and spoke about how she just was very confident in herself, was not afraid to put her foot down, knew what she wanted, wasn't afraid to, you know, say what she wanted. And Brittany was like, in the words of Taylor Swift, she was just like a perpetual people pleaser and was not like, (laughs) she felt like she was kind of helpless helpless um and said that she believes she got that from her mother boom roasted (laughs) can we talk about the kabbalah red string that was like the hottest accessory that year yes a red thread on your wrist i didn't know what it meant like what kabbalah was but i knew i wanted a red string oh yeah oh yeah and so she was really close to madonna at this time and um she was like i had become too nice and um but uh and she was just trying to take this kind of strong queen behavior energy that she was getting from Madonna. And that's kind of where the VMA from 2000, wow, we just talked about five came up. What's, what's the one Holly? Was that 20, 20, 2005 once, whatever the, the kiss, the kiss. I don't have my years written down. And she said that the, the VMA, we didn't, I would have loved more details about this, but Every time that they rehearsed this VMA's performance, they did an air kiss. They weren't like doing real kisses um, in rehearsal. And she says about two minutes before the actual performance, she was sitting on the side of the stage and thinking about my biggest performance to date at the VMA's when I had pulled off the suit to reveal a sparkly outfit. So I guess she thinks of that as bigger than Banana the Snake. And but which I agree. No, oh, I agree. Well, that was my favorite, but we're, I like, yes, but I feel like Toxic gave us sort of like a similar moment, whereas Banana, like, there's no that's true. No one has no other moment. That's true. But you know, it could go either way. But so she was like remembering these moments she had on the VMAs, and she's like, I want a moment like that again this year with the kiss. Should I just go for it? So, like, that makes me think that like they weren't gonna kiss, but they went for it, but like. That seems, I don't know about that, but um, they obviously went for it. And so, but it was during the rehearsals for the VMAs that Brittany came up, she says, for the idea with asking Madonna to be on me against the music. And like, I love, I loved reading this because I love me against the music and it's not really loved in the fandom. It's kind of shit on and her label didn't like it either. And they were, they they didn't want it to be the lead single off in the zone, and they wanted something more like slave for you. And she was like, okay, well, what if I get someone a, a cool feature on it? Like, would they be down? They're like, who? And she was talking with like a manager or something or someone, uh, Barry Weiss, who, uh, who ran the label, Casual. And he's like, she's like, how about Madonna? And like, kind of like flicked her head towards Madonna, and he was like, holy shit, yeah, that'd work. Uh, and so she went over and basically pitched it and it as something that would benefit both of them. And she agreed. And Brittany says, Me Against Music is still one of my favorite songs. And the collaboration with her is part of what makes it so memorable. And thank freaking God, because I love that song too. And I love knowing that Brittany loves it. Um, she's also, so then she started talking about In The Zone. And she said, Toxic is still one of her favorite songs to perform, which I'm a little surprised she's not sick of it yet. But like, fair enough and um it was it was around this time though this uh, this is a weird story um but so i'm gonna skip she just talks about how these men came into her room and started interrogating her with her father she doesn't say what what, she doesn't say what about and she just like didn't respond 
And then she's like, and then the next day I got the call that I was going to be on Diane Sawyer. And I was like, okay, but what did the men ask you about? I need to know more. But she didn't tell us. And so we get to Diane Sawyer. And she was told she was going to do it. She didn't have a say. She wasn't told what the questions would be ahead of time. She didn't get a heads up. She didn't obviously get any screeners like you can't ask about this or that. And she said she was absolutely humiliated. She believed she didn't owe the media details of her breakup. She says, I shouldn't have been forced to speak on national TV, forced to cry in front of this stranger, a woman who was relentlessly going after me with harsh question after harsh question. Instead, it felt like I had been exploited, set up in front of the whole world. And she said, the interview was a breaking point for me internally. A switch had been flipped. I felt something dark come over my body. I felt myself turning almost like a werewolf into a bad person. A bad person? And a bad, and the B and the P are capitalized. Yeah. Wow. I can see that that interview, like, had that also, though, we all have to agree that, that Diane Sawyer was, like, not Terrible. ethical. Like, that was not, it's cringeworthy <sighs> what that interview did. But, oh, my God, a bad person. And what is a capitalized bad person? Like, to me, that means that, like, that's something that it's like a label for a, oh. a, ty- a type of character in her mind that she never wanted to be. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I know. Uh, So that was a big shifting point, according to her. And next we get into the wedding, the first wedding. She goes to she's home in Louisiana for this for the holidays. Lynn's given her shit for partying with some of her old friends in a guest house on the Serenity property. And so she's like, I'm a freaking celebrity. Let's leave Serenity and go to Vegas. And that's when she goes to Vegas, spends a few nights there, and ends up ma- marrying Jason, you know, a childhood friend at the Little White Chapel at 3.30 in the morning. She says, to be clear, he and I were not in love. I was just honestly very drunk and probably in a more general sense at that time in my life, very bored. And she says the next day, <laughs> the next day, her whole family flew out to Vegas acting like she killed someone. She was like, I honestly wasn't taking it very seriously. And I thought it was strange that they were involved so quickly, even prior to her getting to the point of like regretting what she had done. She hadn't even like processed and regretted it yet. And her parents were there like, it's being annulled. And um, she said, I realized something about my being under their control and not having a stronger connection Excuse me. She said, I realized something about my being under their control and not having a stronger connection to someone else had become very, very important to them. What do I have over you guys? I wondered. Why would someone else be such a huge threat? Perhaps it's worth mentioning that by this point, I was supporting them financially. So they, uh, had, yeah. Yeah, they had their claws in very tight. And, you know, Jason Alexander you know, they, they got married. They didn't have a prenup in place. You know, there was a threat to the money. There was a threat to the finances. This was not part of the plan. And the family reacted that way. I mean, to be fair though, like if my kid got married in Vegas, I would do the same thing. Like what, what, yeah. <laughs> but like she, the way she said it, she's like, they treated me like I, she goes, did I kill someone last night? She like, didn't understand why, they, like she genuinely like, didn't know what happened last night that they were so upset about. And it was, the merit like that's how upset they were you know just like but so next we get into the onyx hotel tour do you know that tour Kels? 
I don't. Will you enlighten me? So this is definitely a fan favorite tour and Brittany freaking hated it. Um, it's not my favorite, but a lot of people love that tour. And she says, this was... This was one of the darkest times of my life, and the vibe of the tour was dark, too. A lot of sweaty numbers, dark themes, and moody moody lighting. This tour also marked a change in my relationship with my brother, Brian. So Brian was hired as part of her team during this time, and he actually was pivotal in inking her huge deal with Elizabeth Arden um, for the perfumes. Um, But she's like, it really pissed her off that he booked her on this, like, grueling tour and then just like went off and enjoyed his life and she didn't like see him again the whole time and she just felt like she kind of like she says I feel like I lost track of my brother over those years and it felt like a still like a double loss because it felt so close to to Justin and then we get I know we get next to the federal line of it all and (laughs) I know I'm K fed up with this man so they met, you know, at a club and right away there was this connection, she says, something that made me feel like I could escape everything that was so hard in my life. That first night we met, he held me and I meant he held me in a pool for hours, which I don't think we knew about that. She said it was beyond a sexual thing. It wasn't about lust. It was intimate. He would hold me as long as I wanted to be held. After what I'd gone through with Jay, I hadn't been with someone in a real way in a long time. And she's like, you know, everyone's saying I was going to dr- date Prince William or, you know, someone else. And all I wanted was to be held by a freaking man in a swimming pool. Like, oh, that's just, really sad. Yeah. And also, I remember all those rumors that she was going to date Prince William. Oh, I know. And I was like so excited by that. I was like, if anyone can have him, if it's because I thought he was so cute back then. Everyone had a crush on him. Yes. But, and it was, yeah, if I can't have him, Prince should. can have him. Yes. And um, so she said... She did say she knew Kevin had a bad boy image, but she had no idea when we met that he had a toddler, nor that his ex-girlfriend was eight months pregnant with his second baby. I was clueless. I was living in a bubble and didn't have a lot of good close friends to confide on, confide in and get advice from. I had no idea until after we'd been to a, together for a while and someone told me, you know, he has a new baby, right? Um, and... So she didn't believe it, but she asked him and she's like, you have kids? And uh, he admitted it and he told her that he saw them once a month. And she goes, so a number was done on me. Obviously, I had no idea. And of course, during this time, she was being portrayed as this like crazy homewrecker. And like, but you think back then, you know, yeah, we don't ha- we don't have like she didn't know and she didn't have access to the Internet, like much Internet. She was already very on a tight leash. And like, I, I believe that. Um, I don't think we had Facebook back then. Like Facebook was just for like yeah, college kids. You're, it was right around the corner. It was literally yeah. right around the corner. And so she, we're spoiled with how easily we can find out someone's cheating now. Like it I know. Was, you didn't have location services on I phones. <laughs> I know. And so um, she brought him on the Onyx Hotel tour with him. I think she was really trying to combat kind of this loneliness she was feeling um she she said the tour was just so rough it was super sexual almost too sexual in her opinion she she said she thinks she was trying to kind of rebel um to you know this jt embarrassment but it was just even too much for her and she said she hated the stupid tour so much that she prayed to get hurt and as we talked about in our blackout episode 
that she did while filming Outrageous a few months. There were still a few months of tour dates left. And she said, I, I didn't want to feel the pain. And so I the doctors offered me Vicodin and I took it. So noted. Um, she Reflecting, she says Onyx Hotel was a mistake. She should have taken time to process and heal. Um, but that isn't a thing in the music industry. So that's that. Um, right. She was conditioned to just keep going. Exactly. It, she was forced to keep going. She didn't really have a say. And she thought that Kevin would give her freedom and the stability she was craving. So after their infamous wedding, she parted ways with her current management and posted a letter on her like fan website to tell everybody, her fans, that she was going to take some time off to enjoy her personal life. She was really excited and optimistic that this is where things were going to change for her, which is really sad. And so then <laughs> we get to the pregnancies. And she says, two things about being pregnant. I loved sex and I loved food. Both of these things were absolutely amazing throughout both of my pregnancies. But she also says she became kind of um, a mama bear during this time and was very um, just protective. She says, I was the meanest woman alive. Like I just was not, no one was going to be messing with me when I was like pregnant with my babies. Um, and um she just, she said, she, you know, that's how she described herself. And um, her boys were born three months apart. And she thought if she stayed out of the public eye a bit, she would eventually be left alone. But she was always like found. And she was just really trying to find a way to avoid, keep her sons out of that aggressive paparazzi eye. And um, when, what she said about that kind of sucked, it hurt. She said, what no one in the media seemed to realize was that I was hard hard on myself as it was. I could be wild, but at heart, I was always a people pleaser. Even at my lowest, I cared what people thought. Just the level of civility, just on the level of civility, it was incredibly painful to be treated with such disregard, such disgust. And she's just talking about all the headlines. Britney's a bad mom. Like Britney almost dropped some shot. Preston. Yeah. Like driving with the baby in her lap or when she's like crying with the baby on her yeah. she goes into the you know it was really um sad what she went through that time and she, you know she commented also about how her you know obviously she looked different and you know she was huge or she was out and about without makeup and and she's like as, as if those types of things work some kind of sin as if gaining weight was something unkind I had done to them personally a betrayal at what point did I promise to stay 17 for the rest of my life oh, wow that's so powerful I know I know and wow so Kevin as we all know started getting into his own music and she was like I was supportive of this I wanted him to have this but he was changing and um she she said she was she knows she was making up excuses in her head, kind of explaining away this behavior. You know, this is how marriage is after a while, you know, that you just kind of accept this. And but she knew eventually that there was issues. And so he was in New York and she flew to New York to see him and wanted to spend some quality time. Um, but Kevin wouldn't see her. He turned her away and Neither would his new manager that used to be on her team. Like, LOL, are you freaking kidding me? They both were like, nope. And she's like, I've seen fame and money ruin people, but I watched it happen Kev happen with Kevin in slow motion. And she's like, you know, fame is not real life. And 
I, I didn't find anything lasting in fame. There's no authenticity for fame, but in fame, but this is what Kevin was on the hunt for. And even after being turned away from her husband in New York City, she still carried on this hope that her and Kevin had a chance. And so she tried to save her marriage one last time and went to see him when he was shooting a music video in Vegas. And she said, this is incredible. When I found him, he had his head shaved. He was getting ready to shoot the cover for his album. He was in the studio all the time. He really thought he was a rapper now. Bless his heart. Because he did take it so seriously. Oh, bless his heart. I know. Roasted Did she drop a lot of bless his hearts? That was the only one. (gasps) She saved it for that special moment to make the most impact. Ooh. I know. It was really um, powerful. And... So basically, once again, she went to the shoot and was turned away. He has since told her that he did not turn her away. But um, all she knew was that her former security guards were keeping her from seeing her husband. And um, she kind of was able to like peek in and see what was going on. And he was like on set. She's like set had turned into a party. They were smoking. They were drinking. He was happy. Didn't have a care in the world. Meanwhile, she was there trying to save her marriage. And um, she she did say she still felt sympathetic for Kevin because she realized he was under a lot of pressure. He was Mrs. Britney Spe- Mr. Britney Spears and was trying to like break out on his own. But she just wanted him to like care a little bit more. And like she felt she like sacrificed a, a lot, like duh, and basically abandoned her career at that time for him and their family. And so it was obviously just like really hurtful um, to be turned away like that. Um, she gave she gave back, um, birth to Jadam James and like that's when I think she she realized she was now that she was going through you know postpartum depression she basically had her babies back to back but she was de- she says now she was definitely facing some like symptoms of PPD but again that was kind of like taboo um, no one talked about it back then no and now. This is really exciting and timely. We get to the blackout era. And she says, recording for blackout, I felt so much freedom. Freedom. Recording for blackout, I felt so much freedom. Working with amazing producers. I got to play. A producer named Nate Hills, who recorded under the name Danger, was more into dance and EDM than pop. He introduced me to new sounds, and I got to stretch my voice in many different ways. Despite my reputation at the time, I was focused and excited to work when I came in. And she talked about kind of like what we talked about in our episode, like trying to enter and leave the studio was like a military operation. She described the paparazzi like an army of zombies trying to get in every second. It, like This was the culture back then. And she described ba- Blackout as a battle cry. After years of being a people pleaser, it was t- trying to please my mom and dad. It was time to say, fuck you. Wow, I know. I love it. And this is amazing. I texted this to Jesse today. She said, I started doing videos on the street by myself. I would go into bars with a friend and the friend would just bring a camera. And that's how we shot Give Me More. To be clear, I'm not saying I'm proud of it. Give Me More is by far the worst video I've ever shot in my life. <laughs> I don't like it at all. It's so tacky. It looks like we spent $3,000 to shoot it. (laughs) 
And that is literally what Jesse said, I, I feel like, on our blackout episode. And it's just, he was I felt very validated to um, have Brittany agree with him, which I, I think it was so funny. Um, but uh, she talked about, you know, some, some more memories of blackout. And um, she just was going through so much back then. She said, I needed to have more self-worth and value that I was able to conjure at that time. And, um, that's just like a heartbreaking sentiment. Um, and she's like, artistically, this was like the best time for me. And it's just juxtaposed with how bad things were going for, were going for her with her family and her personal life. Kevin was doing, a, she goes, Kevin was doing a lot of press. You would have thought he hit a grand slam at the world series. Once he got a nationwide Super Bowl commercial, literally mocking himself She's like, I never saw him. That was it. And it's like, she's like, it was like, he was too good to talk to me. And it's like, when does anyone get too good to talk to Britney Spears? Seriously. (sighs) It's interesting that you say that she, I love that she recognizes that she was on the top of her game creatively because of how well Blackout was received by critics and fans. It's just so awful that this was all going on behind the scenes. Now, how are you doing? Do you want me to finish part two tomorrow by myself? No, let's keep going. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay, we'll keep going. So um, so obviously we're headed to Splitsville. And the first sentence of this chapter is, when I married Kevin, I meant it, I meant it with all my heart. And I believed it. I believe that. Um, I think she was head over heels for Kevin. And Apparently, her a lawyer advised her that she needed to file for a divorce. Apparently, he had heard that Kevin wanted to file but felt guilty about it. And he also knew that it wouldn't look good in the press if he was the one that filed. But her lawyer was like, he's going to file eventually no matter what. And she, sh- you should do it so you won't be humiliated like Kevin Federline's divorcing me. But she's like, what he failed to tell me was that I would be on the hook for all his legal bills by being the one who initiated the divorce proceedings. <gasps> yes and she was like just totally vilified. she was the one who got vilified in the press for like breaking up this family um and she, like she acknowledged that like some people in the press like tried to be supportive like i think of like rosie o'donnell being like you know britney spears divorcing calvin federal you know like everybody was so happy about it but she's like they all often like showed their support by like being cruel to kevin and like that didn't that didn't help it. Like he's the father of my children. And like, that's that, that wasn't it. And she said, looking back, I think that both Justin and Kevin were very clever. They knew what they were doing and I played right into it. That's the thing about this industry. I never knew how to play the game. I didn't know how to present myself on any level. I was a bad dresser. Hell, I'm still a bad dresser and I'll admit it. And I work on that. I try. But as much as I'll own my flaws, ultimately, I know that I am a good person. I wasn't manipulative. I was just stupid. That's one thing Kevin and Justin ruined about me. I used to trust people, but after the breakup with Justin and then my divorce, I never really did trust people again. (gasps) I know. And this next sentence she's this is a controversial person in the fandom but she says one of the people who was kindest to me when i really needed kindness was paris hilton and ah! i know she's like she was like wait why don't the fandom like paris i think some people don't think she like necessarily was like like a good like she's like a party friend you know like i don't like 
Like, why didn't you help get Brittany out of her conservatorship? Like, why? Like, are you really her friend or are you like an opportunist? Like, that's kind of like the debate about Paris. Like, she's a party friend. But hey, if Brittany says it, Brittany says it. And she says, um, you know, I think Paris felt sorry for me. She encouraged me to try to have like fun, you know, when I was going through this. And she's like, with Paris, I went through my party phase, but like, let's be clear. It was never what the press made it out to be. I never had a drinking problem. Like I liked to drink, but I wasn't out of control. And she was like, you know, my drug of choice at the time was Adderall. And it was the only thing that worked for me as an antidepressant, but I had no interest in hard drugs. And she said that night of the bimbo summit, the famous picture um, with Lindsay Paris and Brittany, they had just been out like drinking with the girls and she had asked Lynn to babysit and um, like thinking she was being this like responsible, you know, like someone's watching my kids. I'm going to go out, have fun and, you know, like doing the right thing. And when Brittany got home, Lynn was just like so pissed at her that she had been drinking and went off on her. And Brittany said, um, my mom always made me feel like I was bad or guilty of something, even though I had worked so hard to be good. That's what my family has always done, treated me like I was bad. This fight marked a turning point in my relationship with my mom. I couldn't go back to the way it was before. We tried, but it didn't really work. So, wow. yeah. Yes. But um, <sighs> that's definitely, I mean, it does sound like her family didn't like it anytime someone new came into the mix like a paris who right. is as much as people want to call paris dumb like she was not dumb no. she was she knew how to play the game and i wonder if they saw any of these new friends or new lovers as a threat to their own financial security yeah. because they were trying to control britney so tightly it feels like a cult and she felt that. She's like, my family made me feel paralyzed. And as a result, I gravitated towards anyone who would step in and act as a buffer between me and them, especially people who would take me out partying and get me temporarily distracted from all the surveillance I was under. So just like you said, Kelsey, like a Paris um, kind of create this space um, between what was going on in the House of Spears. But this was when Kevin made a, a bid for full custody. He tried to convince everyone that she was completely out of control. And she literally thought it was like a joke, um, but it wasn't. And so in 2007, this is, we are in January of 2007. This is when it gets bad. Um, apparently Kevin had taken the boys and wouldn't bring them back to Brittany and wouldn't let her see them for week for weeks. And this is before they had figured out in a custody agreement. And this is kind of a, a, you know, a great area, a time, you know, they're both parents, nothing's been decided by the court. So he has as much of a right to them as she does. And so it had been weeks and her aunt Sandra had just died of cancer and like her second mother. So Brittany was really in a state of distraught. And so by this time, it's it's been weeks. Kevin has the kids, and it's February 2007. And she went to Kevin's to ask for them. Like, she 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 literally drove to his house to, like, plead to see her babies. 
and she was turned away. And Jaden was only five months and Sean oh. Preston was 17. And oh. the paparazzi were there and just watched all of it play out. And it was humiliating. And um, she said after that, you know, she was distraught and she just decided to give the paparazzi some material. And that's when she went to the hair salon and took the clippers and shaved off all her hair. Everyone thought it was hilarious. Look how crazy she is. Even my parents acted embarrassed by me. But nobody seemed to understand that I was simply out of my mind with grief. My children had been taken away from me. With my head shaved, everyone was scared of me, even my mom. No one would talk to me anymore because I was too ugly. Shaving my head was a way of saying to the world, fuck you. You want me to be pretty for you? Fuck you. You want me to be good for you? Fuck you. You want me to be your dream girl? Fuck you. Oh my God. And her, she made a good point. She said, my, a friend of mine said after this, like if some, someone took my baby away from me, I would have done a lot more than get a haircut. I would have burned the city to the ground. And truly the point, I mean, they make a point. Um, I don't think everyone, everyone belittled her reasons for doing that. And they I, literally just said she was crazy. Yes. No one cared about all of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. No. And she didn't give up. A couple of days after that, she went to Kevin again to try to see her babies. This is when Allie Sims was driving her and the paparazzi were again on them like white on rice. They were like, Brittany, Brittany, how are you feeling? Like, Brittany, you know, just peppering her. She's sitting there with her shaved head. There's definitely footage I've seen of that. She just has like her head in her hands. And once again, she's denied entry to, um, to Kevin's. And, um, so her now they leave Kevin's, they pull over cause I don't know what to do next. And one of the paparazzi came up to her window. He's like, what I'm going to do, Brittany, all I'm going to do is ask you a few questions. And he, he wasn't asking if he could, he was telling me what he was going to do to me. And he said, and then I'm going to leave you alone. And Allie Sims, her assistant, was like, please, guys, please don't. And, you know, um, she was being so polite and pleading with them as if she was asking them to spare our lives, which it sort of felt like she was. But they wouldn't stop. I screamed. They liked that. When I reacted, one guy wouldn't go away until he got what he wanted. He kept smirking, kept asking me terrible questions over and over, trying to get me to react again. There was so much ugliness in his voice and such lack of humanity. This is one of the worst moments of my whole life. And he kept after me. Couldn't he treat me like a human being? Couldn't he back off? But he wouldn't. He just kept coming. He kept asking me over and over again how I felt not being able to see my kids. He was smiling. Finally, <gasps> I know. Finally, I snapped. I grabbed the only thing within reach, a green umbrella, and jumped out of the car. I wasn't going to hit him because even at my worst, I'm not that kind of person. I hit the next closest thing, which was his car. Pathetic, really. An umbrella. You don't even do any damage with an umbrella. It was a desperate move by a desperate person. Oh. I know. Dude, fame is not, like, what? I know. It's so, like, she then she sent an apology note because she felt bad. Oh. Like, I mean, my God, we don't deserve her. And she then she goes... Wait, Mary, do we know how much that guy made out of the, off of those photos? Um, that's a great question. No. That's what's so fucking sick about it all. I know. Everyone is cashing in on the deterioration of her physical and mental and emotional well-being. 
It's really that is inhumane. I know. Uh, he, he was in one of the documentaries too. Because you know what he said? There was another quote. He did say, oh, this part is sick. Later, the paparazzo would say in an interview for a documentary about me, that was not a good night for her, but it was a good night for us because we got the <gasps> money shot. Yep. Oh, yep. Awful. Awful. So this really sucked. Um, she said she felt like she was living on the edge of a cliff at this time. It was like my mom wouldn't look at me because I was ugly now. It just proved that the world only cares about your physical appearance, even if you are suffering and at your lowest point. And mm. I know. Like imagine that being your mom. But um, so that winter, she they said to her that if she went to rehab, it would help with her custody case. And she was like, and so even though I felt like I had more of a rage and grief problem than substance abuse problem, I went. And when I arrived, my father was there. He sat across from me. There were three picnic tables between us. He said, quote, you are a disgrace. Ew, Jamie. I know. And um, so she, it's sick. So she went to rehab, got 50-50 custody, but obviously that the battles were just beginning with KFED. So next we get the VMAs and... She didn't want to do it. She didn't want to perform via the, the Give Me More. She didn't want to do anything right now. Um, but her team was pressuring her to get out there and show the world that she was fine. And she says, the only problem with this was I was not fine. On top of that, she hadn't slept the night before. She was dizzy. She had two babies in two years. And she said, everyone was acting like me not having a six pack was offensive. And um, also... That night, she ran into Justin backstage before her performance. It'd been a while since she had last seen him. <gasps> yes, everything was going great in his world. He was at the top of his game in every way and had a lot of swagger. I was having a panic attack. I hadn't rehearsed enough. I hated the way I looked. I knew it was going to be bad. And she could see herself on the, like, the video screens in the auditorium. And she was like, it was like looking at myself in a funhouse mirror. I knew it was terrible. Um, and then she's like, meanwhile, Justin, you know, glided his way into his performance and women were shaking their titties at them and like loving everything that he did. And she just like, she was immediately went backstage and was sobbing after this performance. But and she, Ugh. so she didn't even hear until later when Sarah Silverman came out to roast her. She said at the age of 25, 25, I'd done everything worthwhile in my life. I'd ever do. She called my two babies the most adorable mistakes she'll ever see. And she found out about that after the fact, but obviously, you know, that didn't help. Kicking her while she's already down. Yes. And then we get January 2008, which is our original 5150. Um, they had the 50-50 custody agreement. Kevin's bodyguards were coming to pick up the boys from Britney's. First, he put Preston in the car. He went to get Jaden, and it, the thought just hit her. I may never see my boys again. Just with the things how the custody case had been going, she was just very on edge and anxious that she would not get her boys back. So she ran into the bathroom with Jaden and locked the door. I just couldn't let him go. A friend was there and came to the bathroom door and told me that the security guard would wait. I held Jaden and cried so hard. 
But before I knew what was happening, a SWAT team in black suits burst through the bathroom door as if I had been hurting someone. Um, she was confused because she's like, I thought he said he would wait. Like, I thought this was, they were letting me have this moment. Um, but that was not the case. And um, once they take, they'd taken Jaden away from her, they tied her onto the gurney and took her to the hospital. That's our first 5150. Um, so that was in January, 2008. So we're still in January, 2008. She was like, at this time, after that first one, I was hell on wheels. I was taking a lot of Adderall. That's when she started dating Adnan Galib, that paparazzo. She said she was completely infatuated with him and she was just kind of living. Yes, I know. I was like, he's so gross. But, um, (laughs) um, she said she was very like fearless, kind of like living a little like on edge at this time. Um, but he encouraged her to rebel. He let me, she said, he let me sow my oats and still loved me for it. Um, and so, but she noticed it as, as it seemed like the relationship with Adnan was getting more serious. And, and, and as that happened, she sensed that her family was trying to get closer to her. And um, so Lynn calls her one day and was like, Brittany, we hear the cops are after you. Like, let's meet up at the beach house. And she's like, what? Like, I haven't done anything. I've been acting a little crazy, but I haven't done anything illegal. So I'm like, what is this woman talking about? And she's like, no, Brittany, just come to the house. We want to talk to you. So Adnan and her went to the house and they they both knew right away that something was off. And as soon as they basically got there, there were just helicopters and another SWAT team. And that's when she was 5150 again. She was like lured to the beach. A SWAT? Yes. 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 Yeah. How is, why is that necessary? It may be like procedure, but like, I, I, I think it, the fact that they like lured her there to be 5150 is like insane to me. I like it. Lynn. Lynn was the lure. It's so sad. Okay, everybody, I'm sorry. I'm really tired. <laughs> but we are two-thirds of the way through this book. Brittany has just been 5150 twice against her will. And so for part two tomorrow, I'm going to finish talking you through the start of the conservatorship, what happened in the con, and then her getting out of the conservatorship. So, man, what a cliffhanger. We got we to gotta keep you coming back. But um, I hope... You have enjoyed us, this, not us, this as much as we have. And please let us know your thoughts. Send us messages, comment on our Spotify posts. Like, let us know what you're thinking. Cause there's been, I was just going to pick a couple of moments that shocked me in this book and I couldn't, obviously. So here we are. <laughs> you're doing the Lord's work, Mary. You're doing great. You're doing amazing, sweetie. Holy shit. I'm like dying. I can't wait to listen. <laughs> yes, I will. I will do it tomorrow morning. Um, but bye. Bye. <laughs>